0: With that said, we're going to jump into the Word this morning. And we are on the tail end of this teaching we've been doing in the book of Philippians. And we've been talking about some very important things. But before we get into the crux of what we're going to talk about today, I want to share something with you. And it's a bit of a sobering truth, but it's a truth nonetheless worth talking about to make sure that we, we are mindful of it, that we stay away from the areas of this we do not want to touch. And we can proactively labor against the areas of this when we see them. Whether we like it or not, my point here, whether we like it or not. And I'm thankful this has never been a part of the culture of our church. That's because we talk about it when we deal with passages of scripture or themes that address it. There are people in our world who claim to worship the same Jesus we do, they spell his name the same way, they gather in similar ways, and they attempt to do ministry and mission in the same ways. There are people who worship the same Jesus we do. And rather than embracing a Christian lifestyle marked by truth and grace, those two words are inseparable. Truth is what leads us to grace. They choose to embrace a, a Christian lifestyle that is marked by judgment and oftentimes rigidity. I think that's what judgment creates. It creates a, an imbalanced rigidity. It's fair to say, those who do have negatively contributed to the Christian landscape in North America, there's not really anything favorable that can come out of this. And while we here, and certainly the broader Christian world, sees their method as questionable, uh, our culture often views them as representative ambassadors of Christianity. And what this does is it makes the task of sharing the gospel, which can be challenging at times in and of itself, uh, because of this, this pseudo-Christian behavior, it tends to evoke what I would call a somewhat deserved hostility from people at times. So here's a case in point. Uh, in our conversations with those who might have a, a serious issue with Christianity or on local media circuits, uh, oftentimes connecting Christianity with judgment is, is a popular sentiment. It's a behavior that's touted above all else. And it's an unfortunately bad rap that we all get at times, even though there are many, many Christians who despise that attitude as much as the culture does. And keep in mind, when we speak about culture, which we do regularly here, um, I really feel like one of my jobs as a teacher is to understand culture. But when we speak of culture and at times there are objections to the faith, I want you to know that the ultimate culture we're trying to implement as followers of Jesus is his life and his words. So culture, Is They have a voice in our world without question and we are part of our larger culture but our job as believers should be to implement and to live out the culture Jesus wants in every single way and Today we're going to talk about the challenges the differences between grace and judgment So there are places in our world and certainly in the Christian church where there is a a despised reaction to judgment in fact According to what we read in Nehemiah, embracing this type of hard-hearted attitude, it is an attitude that will keep you from experiencing the promised peace Paul talks about in Philippians 4.8. That's been the whole premise of this teaching, at least the tail end of it, is figuring out what we need to dwell on, where we focus our minds and our hearts in such a way that we can experience the peace of Jesus. And if you want to really experience the peace of Jesus, it's important that you understand what his grace is. Now on a side, but very relevant side note, it's worth pointing out that there is a subtle and growing hypocrisy in this sentiment in our culture, the judgment accusation. Because on one hand, it's very common to see the Christian being a- accused of practicing a judgmental faith. And I just want to reiterate that I'm not denying here that there are some people who do this. I'm not, this is not like a bury my head in the sand message. This is a message that recognizes there is at times a reaction to this because it's very prevalent. I just want to say, though, that we we live in a culture that often condemns judgment. Here's where I see the hypocrisy, while simultaneously doling it out with great ease. And this is where we need to level the playing field a little bit. Now, maybe you're here saying, man, Anthony, I don't even know you. Maybe you're here for the first time, or maybe you've been here for a while, and you're saying, that is an incredibly judgmental thing to say on a week where you're talking about not being necessarily judgmental in an unhealthy way. Maybe you're saying, how can you say that and let alone back that up, prove that? And what I would say is, if you are here asking that question, how can you say that? um, I'd say that's a really great question you should be asking. And I would like to answer it. The easiest way to see the validity of the contradiction I hope to point out here in our larger world, and certainly within the Christian context, is to look at Twitter. Okay, let me just start there. Now, I'm not against Twitter, I'm not against Facebook, I'm not against any of those tools, but I think if you want to see a really great example of the voice of culture at large, look at some of our social media platforms. And I'll just highlight Twitter today, which, by the way, this week made an announcement that they're thinking about moving from 140 characters to 280 characters, which just means you'll get double the judgment when you look at your Twitter after church. And for some of you scallywags, you're going to do it right here in five minutes, right in the middle of church, all right? Judgmental behavior. It is astounding. Somebody over here is really chuckling, but that's because they were just on Twitter, right? It is astounding to me, and probably not just to me, how much vitriol, careless, and uninformed thought. That's not the only thing on these platforms, but there is an abundance of it. How much vitriol, careless, and uninformed thought, and frankly, judgmental behavior is on that platform, and others like it. Uh, so much so that in, in writing and media broadcasts, Twitter is actually now, a, it's a personified notion. Meaning, uh, go ahead and read any news this week, wherever Twitter is evoked, wherever something happens in our world, and Twitter has a voice, Twitter is talked about as it being like a person, like Twitter responded this way. Really, I'm not making this up. And so while I've got nothing against these tools, and I really do believe them to be a tool that also has a net positive on our culture, there's no fundamentalism in my talk today, they do stand as an evidence of the problem I want to talk about today. Despite the accusation, judgment is not just a Christian issue, it is a people issue. And for today, here's where I want to narrow the funnel. But for today, I'm more concerned with making sure that we as God's people understand why getting this right is so important for our own lives and for the larger sake of representing Jesus' name well in the world. Just because Twitter has a platform to really be harsh, that's a cultural reality. That does not mean that the Christian on Twitter or in our everyday conversations can subordinate themselves to that culture. We are here to create a culture within a culture, Jesus' ways. And so in the early days of my pastorate, and even to this day, while the questions often change as far as the ones culture is asking us to defend regarding our faith, in the early days of my pastorate, this judgment accusation was a big one, and it still is today. And it caused me to ask a lot of serious questions about our faith and my faith. The biggest being, why are there some people in Christianity who read about a God in Scripture, who is portrayed as a God, who certainly has the authority to cast immediate judgment on people? Please hear me. This is not a message where I'm saying God is not a God who judges. There is going to come a day when he once and for all judges the earth. And it is solely his prerogative to judge in Scripture. this is not a message to act like judgment isn't in the Bible. It is a message, though, that that talks about God having the absolute authority and prerogative to judge immediately, but seldom is that his first road with us. This is what Nehemiah 9.17 teaches us. It describes his approach best when it says, and keep in mind, this comes in the context. If you were here a few years ago, three years ago, we talked through this whole book. And it's interesting that this verse we just read, God is always ready to forgive. He is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This verse comes on the heels of Nehemiah saying God's people were way far away from him. Way far away from him. I don't know what just happened with the lights, but forgive them, all right? Maybe God wants to light the room up today. There's your cheesy Christian joke for the morning, all right? God can judge, but chooses a different way with us regularly. And the person of Jesus is a great example of this, right? The, the reality of the state of the world and its fallen condition is immediate judgment. But yet from Genesis to Revelation, we see that God's economy is often very different. God will judge one day, but in this intermediate space, the era of the church, he gives us his son who offers us his grace in order to avoid that judgment. Nehemiah nine seventeen. That wasn't made up in Jesus. It was fulfilled in him. God's interaction with his Old Testament people, the people of Israel was the same way. They are often very far from him and running from him. And God is what we just read, ready to forgive. He is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so today, we're continuing to study the last teaching section in Philippians chapter 4. And over these past months, we've looked at two important themes in the Christian life. The first addressed how to follow Jesus in such a way that we experience the dynamic nature of the Christian life. All of these messages are online. I would encourage you to read them. They, they encourage us to dance to the rhythms of gospel, the rhythms of community, and the rhythms of mission. The second idea we began in chapter four, and it addresses how we remain in Jesus's joy because we've learned to dwell on the good nature of God in our life. The first truth, gospel, community, and mission teaches us how to experience Jesus's joy. You don't find Christ's joy unless you know the truths of his gospel. You live in community with other Christians and you love your neighbor who does not even love Jesus as you love yourself. That's the foundation for joy and peace, the first truth. The second one, these ideas we've been talking about, these God is clauses, today we're going to talk about God is a gracious God, they teach us how to remain in this. They they give us the practical application, if you will, of what a life rooted in the gospel community and mission looks like. And so we've already talked about, quick summary of the last month, we've already talked about how dwelling on the truth that God is good leads us to the place where we don't need to seek anything else in life. If you believe God is good, that does not mean you don't need other things in life, but it means ultimately you need nothing more than you need God. Then we talked about how believing God is great leads us to the place where we don't need to fear the circumstances of life. If you generally, generally believe that God is a good God and a great God, a God is who, he say, who is who he says he is, then what that means is you don't need to fear anything. Because ultimately what's happening is the fear of the Lord, which is what we talked about, The fear of the Lord, recognizing who he is and his care for you, allows you to live life fearlessly. Last week we talked about how believing God is glorious. Recognizing the short-term definition of glory, God's weightiness, his significance, his presence in your life, it leads us to the place where we don't have to be controlled by the expectations of others in life. When God is the most significant voice in your life, he allows you to sort all of the voices, even the misinformed ones. You can sort those out and know what is true and what is good and what is noble and what is right and what is excellent in the world. Today we add another layer to this. We're going to look at how really believing God is gracious to us leads us to the place where we don't have to live our lives constantly trying to prove ourselves to others. This is a very important life rhythm to embrace for two big reasons. The first is it is a spiritual vaccination that will protect your heart from those who impose impose a judgmental attitude on your life. You'll be able to healthily discern healthy, if you will, and unhealthy judgment. When somebody brings something to you that really matters because they care about you and your relationship with God and others, you'll be able to sort out the difference between that and a person who just really has a hammer of judgment and is missing the heart of the gospel. Secondly, when you truly experience and live in God's grace like we're talking about, it ensures you will have joy and peace in your heart. And by ensuring, I don't mean that that's that's like permanent and it, it never fades and you never struggle with it. By ensuring it, I simply mean the predominant rhythm in your life is joy. And my hope is that when we are without it, that's the portion of our life that feels out of sorts. We can get to a place in life where we are so accustomed to being joyless that it is the normal rhythm of our life. And to be joyful becomes the irregularity. That is not the nature of what Jesus wants in our lives. It ensures that you and I will have joy and peace in our heart even when it might not be present in our circumstances. Because we will no longer believe that we have to live proving ourselves to God or to others. And that is what judgment is. It's a proving issue. This proving issue is what's at the root of a judgmental heart. It's an attitude, especially in the Christian context, an attitude that would prefer to declare to the world how great I am or how great something is rather than how great God is. If you look at the the passages in scripture, the places where Jesus is most harsh, it is often in the places where people have misunderstandings about what judgment is, what self-righteousness is. He condemns the Pharisees because they glorify themselves, what we talked about last week. They are posturing themselves in such a way that they actually believe the great one in life is not their father in heaven, it is themselves. And out of that creates this, this judgmental attitude. It is their attitude That is a proving attitude. It's a look-at-me attitude. That's a problem. And so with that in mind, I want to look at the first first truth we're examining today. It's one I always mention when we speak of grace. Because grace can be just as convoluted a, a concept in the Christian faith as judgment can be. And if we want to follow Jesus well, we really need to understand both of these things. Here's what I want to share with you today. It's a concept I've shared with you before. When you truly understand what grace is, you will live your life in a covenant with God, not a contract with God. If you wanna know if you get grace, this is how you figure it out. At the end of my message this morning, I hope you will be able to discern whether or not you see your walk with Jesus as a contract or a covenant. And that walk is gonna shape the way you walk with other people. Now there is a huge difference in a relationship with Jesus when it's built on a covenant of grace and not a religious contract. Legally speaking, a contract is a relationship built on bargaining terms. And the dictionary defines it like this. A a layman's understanding of a contract would be that it's an enforceable agreement. In other words, there's teeth in it with specific terms between two or more persons in which there's an obligation to do something in return for the other party. Simply put, two people come to the table over a common idea. They agree to provide a service for each other, and then they bind each other to that service. The violation of the contract is when one person violates the terms of the contract they get to the place where they stop providing the service, whatever it is, to the other person. And that's when stuff ends up in court in our world today. <clears throat> a contract is a legal declaration where you expect another party to provide a service for you, to constantly prove themselves to you, and they in turn expect something from you. And when you negotiate a contract, it's mutually understood that the health of the contract and the relationship it creates is based on each party keeping up their end of the bargain. Keep in mind, in a contract, and I'm going to give you an example of this here in a moment, in a contract, the contract is what creates the relationship. Without the contract, there is no relationship. And here's a great example of this. Whenever we speak of contract and grace in this room, I always mention the relationship we have with this movie theater. Some of you might know this, some of you might not. Right now, we will celebrate seven full years meeting in these rooms in one week here with Regal. We're branded Hollywood, but Regal owns this place. And right now, I am knee-deep in renegotiating our 28 contract with Regal at, and, and Restoration, which, by the way, is something else they do not teach you in seminary. They don't teach you how to negotiate with corporate entities. You got to figure that out on your own. Thankfully, I have a very shrewd dad who taught me that early in life. So every year, right around the summertime, I get a call from a good friend In, in uh, he lives in a state now, but we have corporate offices or Regal does in Colorado. And we start discussing what this is going to look like for the next year. And the way this works every single year is we have a current set of amenities. Right now we rent three theaters, and we have foyer space and hallway space, and, and we ask for certain access to areas of this facility, and they, in return, just give it to us for free. Absolutely not, you know that that's not true at all. They asked for money, uh, what we would call a CPI rent index, a commercial property index. They asked for, there's a fair market value for how we rent this place, and it is fair, I would say. That's the way it works every year. It's not great, but it's fair. And so I hope you know that that's how a contract works. And I hope you know that that Regal in uh, Colorado is not just saying, hey, we're going to push back Marvel Avengers this year so the church can meet here. They're going to make some money off of us here. And in a reciprocal way, they provide a place for us to meet until God provides a permanent place for us to meet in, which we have been aggressively looking for for years. Now here's how this works. If we stop paying rent or the theater decides to no, no longer let us meet here, the contract dissolves. One side of the party stops providing the service for the other side of the party. And consequently, the relationship dissolves with it. Now, I say this with sort of uh, in a soft way, meaning we've actually created some pretty good relationships with the people who work here, several of them. Those relationships will not fade. That's because they're built on covenant. But the contract with Regal will fade. When there is no contract, there is no longer a relationship. I don't know about you, but if we get a building, I'm not going to be here anymore on Sundays. You may come here as much as you want. But I will be in that space, not dragon lights are on Sundays. So here's how this works, right? It's a reciprocal service provided to each other. And while this works in the business world and for the theater in us, it does not work when it comes to your faith. And it is the way that many people approach their faith with Jesus. It is the root of judgmentalism. They see their faith as a contractual obligation. They see their faith as a relationship. They will stay in with God so long as they feel the trading of the services benefits them. This is what this creates. The relationship is not about the relationship. The relationship is about what you can get from the other party. When those services are not provided, when you feel God isn't delivering, it's common to see people quit the relationship. This is one of the most prominent things in the last 20 years of my ministry I have seen. People expect something from God, and when they don't get that from God, they often just walk away from Him. The contract's violated. And oftentimes, this leads people to unhealthy expectations of what we think God should be doing for us. We might expect God to keep promises that he never made to us, the importance of understanding the gospel. He's made a gazillion promises to you. It benefits us to know what they are, lest we start holding God accountable to things he said he, he never said he would do in our lives. Like you believe following Jesus means that life is always easy. Say that a lot in here. Or that following Jesus means you won't ever have challenges or problems in life. That's not the way this works. I wish it was, but it's not the way this works. That is a graceless contractual understanding of what relationship is. And the way you can summarize this is this. Jesus, I will do for you. I will love you. I will serve you. I will be there for you so long as you do for me first. That's a contractual faith. Now, on the contrary, let's look at the kind of covenantal love a parent has with their child. This is also an analogy I use pretty regularly because it is perhaps the best example we have in culture today for it. I've heard it rightfully say, years ago, this shaped me. Um, I was listening to a a pastor, he's a retired pastor now, who teaches, um, who's been a very dominant influence in my life, named Tim Keller. He's a Presbyterian pastor in New York City. Several of you, I'm sure, have heard of him, and I've conversed with you about him. Major influence, as far as the living men and women of the faith go, he's up there, as far as a deposit in my life. And I heard him give a talk one Sunday about how having children, he said, is like having your heart walking around outside of your chest. And that's totally true if you have kids. And if you don't have them or are planning on having them, it's someday the emotional reality of this cognitive truth I'm sharing with you is going to make sense. It's a totally true statement. It's like they're a bit of an extension of your soul. Uh, you are happy when they are happy. You often grieve when they grieve. You are pained when they are in pain. And the reason this is so is because a parent has a very covenantal type of love, a unique type of love with their children. And I w- I, what I mean by covenantal is this is healthy parenting. Okay? I realize there are paradigms in our world that are not healthy but I want to talk about the culture of parenting God desires. It's a love rooted in unconditional love and serving, servitude especially, right? And with children, as you know, there is an incredibly long season, and for some of us it might be a permanent season, where there is no, there's no immediate return. You know, you don't invest hordes into your children in the early days and get something back immediately. With parenting, it's sort of like a long-term investment. You're, you're hoping the years of investment, you know, create a life, for us anyways, that honors God and serves the world well. So think about this kind of relationship, especially if you have kids, in contrast to a contractual relationship. A good parent, we would flag this in any counseling arena, a good parent never uses their love as a bargaining tool. They offer it freely and without reservation. That's what parenting essentially is. If you have kids, you have probably never looked at one, and if you did and you are a healthy parent, you've probably corrected this. You know, Think about the moment, I shared a story last week about when we had my first son, Uh, and the kind of emotional reality of that for me. Uh, When you have a child, you don't look at that kid and say, you know, your second day in the hospital before you come home. uh, Hey, listen, I'm going to take you home if you stop crying. You don't do that, right? You sort of know, parenting says, you're not going to sleep, best case scenario, for three months. There's no return in that. There's nothing beneficial about that. Why do you do that? Why do you, you know, take it on the chin and have your pillow robbed from you for months? Because you have a covenantal love for that kid. You know that that's part of the deal, and you make that commitment right? You would never tell your 16-year-old, or maybe you did. If you did, we should talk this week. You'd never tell your 16-year-old, listen, uh, I will hang out with you and spend time with you if you cut the grass, Mow the grass and I'll be with you. You wouldn't do that. Over time, that would create a problem. Or, you know, for those of you in the millennial generation in your 20s and 30s, you would never expect, right, your parent to say to you, listen, I've worked hard for you. I've put you in school or through school. I've helped with that. You're about to get your first job and you're coming to me. You say, hey, mom, dad, I need some advice on a job. You would never say, listen, here's the way it's going to work. I'm going to share with you some ex- life experience about working, but I need 12% of your income once it's done, right? You wouldn't do that. That would be pretty messed up. Your kid would probably never talk to you again, but if there were a small kid, they'd say, let's work this out at 6. 6% is where I'm at with this, right? That's contractual love. Unhealthy, not right, not good. <laughs> Whoever said that needs to negotiate a theater contract. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, here's the way this works. I'm not saying you would never discipline a child. We, I, we wouldn't, I'm not saying we would condone his parents' irresponsibility. That's not what I'm saying here. But a good parent would never stop loving a child because they make a mistake or because they err or because they fall in major ways. That's the tension of parenting. We might not necessarily approve of what's going on there, but a good parent is still going to try to love. You'd never consider using, using these things as a bargaining tool to trade your love for. And that's because the love for a kid is selfless. It's a servant love that uh, that a parent has for a child. And there's an irony in this. Over time, it fosters a very deep type of love that causes you to joyfully and unconditionally make great sacrifice for your kids. In making the sacrifice, it sort of deepens your ability to make the sacrifice. The same is true with following Jesus. The deep nature of that love comes from daily giving yourself away, not from daily expecting. Giving yourself away is what helps you to be healthy in the Christian faith, not demanding from others. And if you look at the math on this, if everybody's giving themselves away, everybody's needs start getting met. They just get met in a very Christ-honoring way, as brother and sister poured to brother and sister. In many cases, that giving away type of love is what causes a child to reciprocate it to their parents. That's the end game return. You're looking to see that selflessness perpetuated as our children raise their own children and make their own mark in the world. Now, no one in his or her right mind would ever think of raising a kid under a contractual type of love. It is a emotionally, physically, and spiritually abusive way of raising a kid because it's certain to undermine the health of the relationship. On the contrary, the more we serve our children, even when it's difficult, the more there's this covenantal love, even when it's at our own expense, the more you come to love them and somewhat ironically desire to love and serve them in more significant ways. Short story, a healthy healthy parent would never think of trading love for performance. And that's where we're going. This parenting love is a great example of the way God loves us. It's the difference between grace and judgment, and how you understand the way your Father in Heaven sees your life. What I'm trying to say here is, while a contractual relationship it works well and is necessary in the business world, it will absolutely ruin your faith with Jesus Christ if this is the way you see God's love and care for you. And this is because it violates the way God designed us to be in relationship with Him. Remember, there is a culture God speaks of. There is a way He desires us to know Him and to know each other. The two greatest commandments in the Scripture. No person with a heart beating in their chest will be able to put up with believing that God has a tit for tat kind of love with us, a fickle love that He distributes when we're jumping through the hoops properly and He takes away when we do not jump through the hoops properly of life. If you believe God treats you like this, it is going to be impossible for you to dwell in Jesus' grace because it means you likely don't understand what grace is. You'll constantly try to prove yourself worthy of God's love. Eventually, you will either walk away from God when you realize you can't live up to the perceived agreement or you will go the other way and you'll start killing it, at least in the moral sense, and you'll become self-righteous when you think you can live up to God's standards. Both create a faith that is not a very good one to have. It's a condemned fate, fate by Jesus in Scripture. This contractual behavior knows no boundaries and it is a true joy robber. <clears throat> and what's most troubling is it's so far from the way Jesus treats us. So think about this. Christ's whole life was built on doing things for us, fully knowing we could never live up to what he does for us. This is the premise of the gospel. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And there is no way we can repay that in, in the fullness of the way Jesus gives it to us anyways. The cross is a great example of this. Jesus, our Jesus, dies on the cross knowing a slew of people are going to reject him. He knows that. He's up there looking at the crowd and he knows like best case scenario is 15 out of the mob is going to follow me here. That's what happens. Yet he still gets up on that cross. And he knows that for the percentage of us who are trying to follow him, we're going to do it in very flawed and broken ways. We're going to try to live our lives in light of Jesus's truth. We're going to commit our lives to the gospel, but we are not going to be able to live up to the standards of the gospel the way Jesus did. And that right there is the heart of the gospel. The way you understand that statement is going to free you or bind you in a way that one brings you joy, one robs you of it. The heart of the gospel. To truly experience Jesus, we have to get to the place where we stop believing God only loves us if we perform. Because that's a contract. But a covenant of grace shapes a person's heart in a different way. What it says is, I actually really do recognize what God has done for me. I see with my own eyes, and I I recognize the cost of what it means for Christ to die for me. I really do know I could never live up to that. I can never pay for that. And the beauty of God's covenant of grace is that God is not asking you to. If he was asking us to do it, he would not have put Jesus on the cross. He would have put us on the cross. And there's a ton of theological problems with that that I don't even have time to share with you today. We can get coffee this week if you want to talk through the reason why God didn't put us on the cross. It's freeing when you live in the reality of what we're talking about this today. And the freeing statement is this. We, we no longer have to live in life saying, I have to learn, earn my love from God on a daily basis. Or I have to prove myself to God on a daily basis. I just have to train my heart to love his son more deeply on a daily basis. That is what grace is. And listen, when you, when you live in grace, this is where we're going here in a moment, grace creates performance, performance in the healthy sense. When you understand you can't earn the favor of God, when you understand ministry and mission is a big job that far exceeds our capability to do it, when you start believing that God is actually the entity working through us, it starts increasing your ability to do good mission and ministry. It starts helping you to deal with the challenges and the struggles in your life because the, the, the scale of economy in God's world is changing. You're putting the onus of your faith back on God, but in putting the onus of your faith, the root of your faith, back on God through his son, you're not removing your responsibility from it. That's a, that's a grace sermon we've taught in here too. That's the other end of the abuse spectrum. It's when you say, God is grace and I can do whatever I want. I can be whomever I want to be. True grace in the Christian faith means we want to be more like Jesus and we want to live more like him. That's how you know if your grace equation is, is congruent in your spiritual uh, math. And this leads me to the second truth I want to share with you today. The mark that you are dwelling in God's grace, the mark that you understand grace, is when your heart begins to heal and grow in Christ. It heals from the things that you struggle with. And I realize healing is a lifelong process. Healing and growth are what you start experiencing. And in the Christian faith, many respected leaders have called this theological truth we're speaking about now, the scandal of grace. The scandal of grace. It's an interesting way to describe it. In fact, there's sort of a guy in the free church, who, which is our denominational connection, and we have a missional partnership through Acts 29. These are two robust partnerships we have. Uh, there's a guy named D.A. Carson, who's a great pastor. He teaches at TED Seminary, and he wrote uh, sort of extensively about the scandal of grace. This is an interesting way to describe this, and it's a pretty apt way. And that's because grace, when it's really understood, it can be a pretty controversial subject. Forget judgment for a moment, right? Grace in and of itself can be a controversial subject because it violates the merit-based system many people want to have with God and want to have with other people. We want to put five cents in and get a nickel out. Some of us want to put five cents in and get a quarter out of life, right? But when you look at the merit-based system with God and sometimes the the debit philosophy Jesus has with us, oftentimes we will put a dollar in and be out seven bucks at the end of the day when we're showing grace to people. But that's exactly what God has done for us. And it's why we have to understand this scandal. Genuine covenantal grace teaches us that God loves us because of what he's done for us in Jesus, not because of what we do for him. You know, if you grew up in a Christian home, I did not, but if you grew up in a Christian home and you went to Sunday school, or whatever your church called that, you likely heard this statement framed a hundred million different ways. And it, sort of like God being a good God, is a statement that can be somewhat trite. But man, is it not trite at all. Understanding the root of this is what's going to shape joy or create hardship in your life in your pursuit of God. It sounds like a flowery Christian truth. And some people, when they truly understand it, cannot handle it. And this truth is going to do one of two things in your faith with Jesus. The first is it will drive you away from Jesus. Or excuse me, it'll drive you towards Jesus or it will totally drive you away from Jesus. When you recognize you can't perform to earn God's love, it either drives you to him or eventually you just say, I can't live up to this and it drives you away from him. And you're probably saying, how can a proper understanding of grace, a proper understanding of grace, drive a person away from Jesus? Well, here's how. On one hand, the scandal of grace teaches us that every person, no matter who they are or how sinful they are, must repent of their sin. That's what it means. It means there is a thing in our world called sin. It is the place where the standards of God and the standards of humanity are misaligned. God says, I want it this way. And humanity says, I'll do it this way. And in the middle of all that is sin. And that is a problem, one that Jesus deals with for us. On the other hand, though, The scandal of grace also teaches us that every person, no matter how good they believe they are, this is where the self-righteous and the judgmental come in. They also have to repent of sin in the same way. And it's a great example of how even our performance, our ability to be obedient, there can be an aesthetic of obedience in our lives. We can be doing the things God wants, disconnected from the heart God wants them done with. And in the same way, that person I'm just using the colloquial terms of the world. The good and the bad, they must repent in the same way. They all go through the door of Jesus. And when you throw this in a merit-based system, it, it, it jacks the whole thing up. Because the good, like the Pharisees are like, what do you mean I got to repent of my sin? Look at me. Look at how great I am. And then you got like the tax collector who's like, look at how not great I am. And in this paradigm, you have the good and the bad. You have the one who gets it and the one who doesn't get it. But at the end of the day, they all have to get Jesus if they want to know God. This is the scandal of grace. And what's challenging about this is that repentance is, is a, new, it's a neutral term, sort of, is the way I would say it. We all must do it. And it doesn't matter what, you know, what road you're coming to through it. We have to go to God and recognize Jesus' grace. Because if you do not, the self-righteous attitude that says, I don't need to do this, often creates the judgmental attitude we're trying to stay away from today. It creates a contractual relationship with God. And that person left unchecked feels at some point that God actually owes them something. So as we start to wrap up, I want to give you some, uh, some examples and then one closing truth about how you can know if you're practicing a contractual love like this in your life. There are some markers. A, a mark of health is when you begin to heal and grow. A mark of unhealth is when you actually have some of these rhythms I want to talk about. It's when you say to God, I'm really doing good things for you. You know, I'm serving my neighbor. Uh, I'm going to church regularly. I'm reading my Bible. You know, I'm serving in this room. I'm on setup. up. I work with kids. Uh, when you mention like, hey, we have needs in our community. I step up and I do it. I care for my neighbor. You look at your life. It's the good life, right? And you say, listen, um, I'm doing everything. Really like trying to do this with a good heart. Everything you're saying I should do. But my life stinks right now. It's super hard. Like I'm doing all the good things and I'm looking at the end of my equation and it seems like my life is much harder than everybody else's. Why are you not blessing me? Why does it seem like everyone else in life is on a free ride and I'm not only paying my life toll, but I'm paying their life toll too? Or it's when you say to God, listen, hey, uh, I'm looking at other people in my life, some who say they believe in you and they are living half as good as I am, half as good. They are never in church They don't ever do anything when we have needs. They lavish themselves. I'm looking at them and I'm looking at me and I'm saying, their life is much better than mine right now. Why is that? Why do they seem like they are without struggles? Why does it seem like they hurt and long for nothing? Why is that? Man, maybe you get to the point where you're actually like, they're like scoundrels and they got an easier life than me. Why is that? Or or it's when you start to think that following God, the term I like to use is, uh, it's a cosmic reward system. It's like a cosmic gumball machine you think that I'm going to put my life into that, that little quarter hole and God's going to give me like a big red gumball. And every time I put a quarter in that hole, I get a big red gumball. That's not how it works always. And in fact, what I would say is God is perpetually blessing you and I. It's just a matter of whether or not we can understand the way he's attempting to bless us. It's not always that linear. God, answer all my prayers and make my dreams come true. The only place on earth that will make your dreams come true is Disney and they will charge you like $9,000 to do it. Okay? Jesus' grace is free. The person who sees their relationship with God like this has embraced a contractual relationship with God. They believe what they do is what makes them acceptable to God. So they live in a constant state of trying to show God and others why they're worthy of God's love. And when left unchecked, this person will even start to believe God owes them something. This is how you know the train is totally off the tracks. They no longer see grace As something they can never repay and they are indebted to God for in a healthy way. They start saying, like, man, you owe me something now, God. Where are you? When are you going to show up? But God says something very contrary. The scandal of grace is that no one can earn my love because they perceive themselves as better than others. The scandal of grace. No one is exempted from my love because they perceive themselves as less worthy than others. The scandal of grace. To believe this way means there's no need for Jesus in our relationship with God. And this is why it's a scandal. Because at that point, there is no no need for Jesus. And when there's no need for Jesus, there is no longer a faith. Because according to God, there is a faith because of Jesus. He's the centerpiece of it all. That is the root of the scandal of grace. That is the point of my talk this morning, my sermon this morning. Those of us who do not learn to rest in God's grace will never be able to experience his peace and joy in their heart. When there is harsh and rigid judgment, it is almost often, almost always disconnected from an understanding of grace. And you know, we have some pretty interesting passages in scripture that talk about the ability to receive grace is deeply connected to our understanding of it. You have that in the Lord's prayer, right? God's talking about forgiveness. And he's saying, listen, if you don't know how to forgive other people, it's really a, good, it's a good, good chance that you don't actually understand what my forgiveness means in your life. That's why we want to be very mindful of this. In missing some of these things, we might be missing the heart of who Jesus is in our lives. And so you see, living your life believing you must prove yourself to God like this is exhausting because it denies the most foundational teaching of our faith that you can't and don't have to prove yourself to God. Jesus has already done that. That does not mean we don't have responsibility. That does not mean that we will not spend the rest of our days learning to become more like Jesus. The sanctification process, we're not talking about that today, but that is just as prevalent a part of this faith. Grace brings us to Jesus. Our pursuit of him over the rest of our days is what makes us more like him. True grace, though, what we're speaking about this morning is recognizing that Jesus secures you and fixes you to the Father. He does it. That is the reason why you don't need to live your life desperately seeking the approval of others because God has loved you just as you are. And so when you deny the scandal of grace, it will make you the kind of person who thinks God owes you something because of how well you perform for him. And when that happens, you'll eventually get aggravated with God when you realize that he did not sign that contract. You might have tried to slip it in there at the end but he didn't put his name on that piece of paper. The cross signs a different contract. He's made a covenant with you and I that says, I don't pass out blessing based on what you do. That's a misunderstanding of blessing. I'm not saying God can't pass out blessing based on what we do. I'm not even saying that he doesn't, but I'm saying if that's the only way we see blessing, we greatly misunderstand blessing because the message of the cross is God has already given us the ultimate blessing. In other words, we don't even need anything else. The fact that God gave us Jesus should be blessing enough to satisfy our souls for the rest of our days. But that is not often a common human narrative, and I'm included in this. There are just days when we want more. But the question is, why is Jesus no longer enough? He's already given us the ultimate blessing by inviting us to be a part of what Jesus has already done for us, no matter what you and I do, because it is in Christ that you and I are approved. And so this morning, as we close, ask yourself some questions as we move into response time. Do you really believe God is gracious to you? Ask yourself, if you're living in a constant state of insecurity with God, this is a great example of you maybe not believing God is gracious to you. Are you always wondering if he's going to stop loving you because you can't live up to his expectations? Do you see your peripheral relationships in life the same way? Listen, the way you understand God's role in your life is going to shape the way you understand the role of other people in your life. These two things are intricately connected. Or are you, the, are you living with the peace of God in your life? Not perfectly, but there's peace there. Are you the person who cares deeply about honoring God in your life, deeply cares about that, but has found rest in knowing that while God is deeply pleased with your efforts and expects them of us, he wants us to serve him. He wants us to be faithful. We know that his love for us isn't based on that. This morning, you ask yourself, if you really believe, like we sang, and will hear momentarily, Jesus paid it all for you. We're going to meditate on that song here in a moment. As we move into our response time, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about his grace? And what are you going to do about it? pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we've had this morning here, meeting people, hanging out, talking. This time we've had singing to you. This time we've had listening to your truth. And this time we will have now, as brief as it is, we will have really, really talking to you directly. God, over these next moments, we pray, Lord, that we would respond. There is no obligation to do anything in this room right now, but to hear from you clearly and to follow you in the way you lead us this morning. I pray, Lord, in a very busy world that these next moments you would make very quiet, that you would still our hearts, that you would quiet our souls and that you would show us where we stand. Do we understand your grace and do we live in light of that? And for those of us in this room that have already answered that question, we do understand your grace. I ask you to ask us a different question. Do we understand your grace enough to where we show it to others and desire to see others know it in the same way? Do your bidding in our hearts right now Find the enemy from this place. Clear our minds and let us hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.